Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for Lent this year, um, we have been talking about the meaning of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection for people like us. Um, it's good, I think, to be reminded that Jesus' death and resurrection aren't just things that happened to him a long time ago, um, but that they have deep meaning for you and me right here, right now, this morning. So in order to think about the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us, we're going to look this morning at Romans 6, uh, verses 1 through 6. And I'll read that for us now. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible. Or you can just listen as I read from Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me uh, pray for us. Father, I love those uh, those words that we just sang, old words that you have bound your love to us by solemn oaths. That you love us because you have promised to love us. Because your love is a reflection of who you are. And I'm really grateful for that this morning. I'm grateful that it's not about what I bring to the table or what um, we as a people can bring to the table. How attentive we can be or how hungry or thirsty we are to hear from you that in many ways, those things are um, not relevant. <laughs> that it is about you and your love for us. And so we ask, Father, that you would do um, what you have promised to do. That, you've, you, that you would use this word that we've read and heard together to show us the love that you have given us in Jesus. Make that really clear to us and change us by it. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, every once in a while, um, I like to imagine what it would be like if Jesus' story about the prodigal son had a sequel. On the one hand, of course, it seems like a pretty ridiculous thing to imagine. I mean, if you know the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells, and more particularly, I think, if you have ever let that story sink deeply into who you are, deeply into how you think about yourself and God and the world, um, then you probably know that in some ways it's ridiculous to imagine a sequel because this story about a father who shows grace to this kid who has blown through and burned up every good thing he had ever been given. It, it's so thrilling and so transforming and threatening and compelling that any sequel would really fall pretty horribly flat by comparison. And to be honest, that's why I like to do it. That's why I like to imagine it. 
It's not so much an exercise for my mind, it's an exercise for my heart. So I'm sorry if you don't know the story of the prodigal son, this will be a little bit confusing to you. But I also have to say that I really envy you, because that means that you can go home this afternoon and you can hear it and read it for the first time. It's in Luke 15. So imagine that it's a few months on, maybe, maybe six months on uh, from that night that Jesus told us about in that story. Um, for the sake of this sequel, let's even imagine that the older son took the father's invitation and came back into the house and joined the party that night. So there they are. It's the whole family, the party to end all parties. The town talked about this party for weeks afterwards. But that was months ago, and now the memories of that great party are fading a little bit, in particular for the prodigal son. The robe that his dad gave him on that incredible, beautiful day is still in fantastic shape, but it's too nice to wear for work. So it's hanging in his closet. The sandals that he got that day were really nice, but like sandals do, they're starting to get a little loose and fall apart. They need some mending. The ring, still beautiful, still a beautiful token, tarnished a little bit, but he can't wear it to do work in, so it sits off his hand most of the time. And then, of course, there's the work. Nothing about the work has changed that much since before he left, even though the farm is half the size that it used to be, which is kind of a painful reminder for everybody, there's still a lot of work to do. In fact, life seems an awful lot like it was before he left. And one morning, the prodigal wakes up and it dawns on him, this life is kind of boring. And he starts thinking back to his old life in the far country. But when he thinks about that old life in the far country, he doesn't remember the back end of that story. He doesn't remember the hunger and the loneliness and the shame and the pain and the regret that he felt. He only remembers the front end of that story, the front end of the journey to the far country, the parties, the friends, the good times, the being able to get whatever he wanted to get that made him feel happy even if it was for just a short while. That's what he remembers and so he allows himself to think the unthinkable. What if I left again? It'd be better than working on the farm. And, you know, I learned my lesson. I wouldn't have to outstay my welcome this time. I could come back before things got really bad. And Dad, Dad, <laughs> he is such a softy. He was so nice to me, so gracious to me the last time I came home. I'm sure he would do it again. You know, maybe you hear that and you think, man, that is absurd. You know, what kind of knucklehead kid would ever think something as dumb as all that? How would he be so short-sighted? How could this kid not remember how dehumanizing and how degrading this was for him in the end? How can he not remember that was like prison for him in the end? And now he's free. And doesn't he know who his dad is? Doesn't he know his dad has given him this whole new life and that his dad doesn't just want him to hang out and do work on the farm? He wants so much more for this kid. These questions are why I do this. They're why I do this exercise for my heart because it's helpful for me to remember I'm the knucklehead kid.
I don't just think about walking back to the far country. I do it. And maybe you can relate. And that is exactly why Paul writes this to his friends in Rome. Those questions about how could you possibly think about doing that are just another way of asking the question that it's at the beginning of that text that we read together. This is what Paul says to his friends. What what are we going to say then, okay? Now what? Now what can we say? Are we going to continue in sin that grace may abound? And you need to know, church, that's not some theological brain teaser for Paul. You know, that's not a abstract discussion of morality and grace and where they fit in the Christian life. That is a red-blooded, everyday, gut-level question that goes right to the heart of what it means to live every day as a Christian person. Paul asked that question because he had to ask that question. Because in the sentences right before this sentence, he has said some of the most unsettling and beautiful things he ever said. It's like this concentrated little pill of good news that perfectly sums up the Christian life. This is what he said in verses 20 and 21 of, of right before us, and the sentences right before the ones we read. This is what he said, where sin increased, where we kept running back to the far country and doing whatever we wanted to do, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Church, that means exactly what it sounds like it means. And it is the best thing that you and I have ever heard. Because it means that there is nothing that is too dark. There is nothing that is too shameful. There is nothing too horrific, nothing too far gone that is not easily within the reach of God's grace to forgive it and to make it new. The farthest country the farthest country that you can possibly imagine running to is not nearly far enough to outrun God's grace. You can never do it. And when we turn to him in genuine repentance and faith, he will forgive us. This is what the prodigal son found. He turns around and he heads back home and he finds to his surprise, his father is running to him. Paul says this, he says, grace reigns through Jesus. Grace rules through Jesus. And that reign leads to life like you never imagined it. Your life and my life. So this is what he's just said, and Paul isn't a dummy. He knows that if we have come to understand this, if we have come to really believe this, if we have come to experience this this un, just unbelievable grace of Jesus, this unsettling, unnerving grace of Jesus, if we really have believed it and experienced it, then at some point or another, we're going to wonder about going back to the far country. Even if it's for just a little visit. W.H. Auden, in his uh, Christmas oratorio, it's called For the Time Being, he has the character in there that that is King Herod. He has King Herod um, give voice to this kind of wondering about going back to the far country in this really blunt statement. This is what Auden has King Herod say. I like 
committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. And even though I know most of us would never say it like that, we'd be a lot more sophisticated about how we think about that, but we know what he means. And Paul is writing to his friends in Rome, and he's writing to us to say, listen, this understanding of the world, this admirable arrangement that you imagine, this understanding of who God is, this understanding of who you are, this understanding of the life that you were really meant for, it is a twisted parody of reality. There is something so much better for you. And so this is what he does. He answers this question, do we keep on sinning that grace may increase? He says, by no means. And then he asks this other question, which is really the question that he wants to ask. How can we who died to sin still live in it? There's no more stark way to put it. Paul is saying that we don't live that way because we are dead to that way of living. That's not who we are anymore. Okay, so that's a little conceptual. What what does Paul mean by that? What does he mean we've died to that way? Well, back in chapter 5, he summed up all human beings under two heads. There's Adam and there's Jesus. On the one hand, there's the life of Adam's daughters and sons. And on the other hand, there's the life as Jesus' daughters and sons. And Paul says that something has happened to make God's people dead to the life as Adam's children. We can't keep living that way, Paul says. So what, did, what, is, what does that mean? What did Adam do? What life did he lead? We know what he did, right? He bought into an alternate reality. He bought into a false story about himself and about God and about the world. And in that story, God was a God who couldn't be trusted. And in that story, God was actually holding out on Adam. In that story, God was actually self-protecting, and God was actually a little bit jealous. And in that story, Adam knew better than God what would lead to his happiness and his good and his flourishing. And so he did what he wanted. He played God. And, of course, everything starts to unravel. He and Eve begin to experience things they were not made for. They begin to experience shame and pain and anger, and they turn on each other to hurt each other. It's, of course, exactly how it worked in, in the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son. You know, he's, he's there at home, and he thinks, you know, life isn't that great here. I'm pretty sure I know how I can work this stuff out better. This life that Dad has for me isn't working here, And I think that I can make stuff better for me, so I'm out of here. And he does it, and he too ends up experiencing things that he wasn't meant for. Fear and anger and shame and pain. And that's how it goes with us too. You know, I think a lot of us, um, and I don't think you have to be, I don't think there's a particularly Christian way of looking at things. You, you don't have to be a Christian to look at sin this way. But I think a lot of us look at sin really just in terms of little discrete acts that we do. This little thing or that little thing. That thing we did yesterday or this thing that we might do tomorrow. 
And that's definitely part of the equation. But here you've got to see what Paul is doing is he's pulling back so that we can see the bigger picture, so that we can understand ourselves as whole beings. And that we can see ourselves as living in relationship to whatever story that we believe we're living in. There's only two of them, Paul says. And the things that we do are evidence of whatever story we believe we're living in. Right? What does this look like? Well, I'll tell you what I think it looks like. Nobody, for instance, wakes up in the morning and thinks, here's, here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to start working today so much that in a few months, my family and my friends, they aren't even going to know where I am. I'm not going to be able to spend any more time with them. Right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw myself into work. I'm going to lose myself in my work. But if we believe that our significance and that our flourishing comes solely from what we do, if we believe that God, for whatever reason, is not going to give us that significance and that good and that flourishing, then we will double down on the things that we think can. We will live out of that story. Right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, you know, this is my plan for the day. I'm going to become hopelessly addicted to something to the point that it ruins every one of my relationships. No one wakes up in the morning and makes that decision. But if we are experiencing deep pain or suffering or sadness or loneliness, and we don't believe that God has anything to say about it, or we don't think he wants to say anything about it, if we believe that the only thing that's going to approximate healing in our life is to just forget about it and medicate it away, then we will run to that far country. We'll live out of that story. And it's so beautiful and it's so audacious because what Paul is saying is that Christian people have died to that whole broken down false story. That's just not our story anymore, he says. This is the way he puts it. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? All right. Here's what Paul's doing. I think he's doing two things. First, he is reminding us what Jesus did. Jesus enters into that broken false story of Adam and his daughters and sons. He enters into our story. And he bears that story, that whole way of living and being apart from God with all of the shame and pain and regret and turning on each other. He bears all of that on his shoulders and he takes it all the way to the grave, his grave, where all of its power is drained away. And then Paul says, you have to understand, we died with him there. Our baptism, Paul says, is a pointer to the fact that what is true of Jesus is now true of us. So Paul is saying there's been this decisive break that the power of that old way of life has been broken. That way of living life apart from God as if he doesn't care, as if he's holding out. The power of that old way of life is broken, and we see that it's not true. It's not our story anymore. 
Instead, Paul says, we've been given a new story, and it's the story that we were meant for. It's the true story of the world. We died with Jesus, Paul says, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, we haven't just been united with Jesus in his death. We have been united with him in his resurrection. And that means a whole new way of living and being has opened up in front of us. Some of you probably remember what the father says when he kind of justifies throwing the big party. <laughs> His son comes home and he, he's like, kill the fatted calf, let's pull out all the stops, make this the party to end all parties, because this, my son was dead, and now he's alive. So you know Jesus knew <laughs> where this story was headed all along to his own death and resurrection for prodigals like you and me. And what Paul is saying here to his friends begins to answer that wandering of the knucklehead kid who thinks about going back to the old country, the far country. And it is, church, one of the most profound meanings of the death and resurrection of Jesus for people like us. You are not the same kid you're just not that kid anymore. You're not the kid who left his father's house in the first place. You have become someone new. You are the dead and resurrected kid. You are a new creation. You have been given a whole new story. You have newness of life. And so going back to the old one is unworkable. And it's absurd. Right? It's a call to live out of a new identity. So I think, how, how do we get our heads around that? What does that look like? And you know, a lot of times when I think about living into a new identity, I think about the day that I was married. <laughs> you know, on the one hand, on the day that I was married, it is accurate to say that absolutely nothing changed in me. Nothing changed in me. I was still the same Aaron after I made the promises to Allison as I was before I made the promises to Allison. No great transformation happened. But on the other hand, absolutely everything about my life had changed in an instant. I had a new identity. Because of these promises that I had made, I was married. I was no longer single. I could not act as a single person anymore. I could not live like a single person anymore unless I wanted nothing but disastrous results. I couldn't go back to that old way of life, not because I didn't want to sometimes, but because that isn't who I was anymore. And the only way that I could get my life in line with that new story, the only way that I could get myself in line with that new identity was to reckon with it and slowly walk into it by changing the habits of my heart and changing the habits of my life. I had to think about this new identity and I had to start to live like it was true every day. So this is what Paul is saying to those of us here who are followers of Jesus is that we're not the same kid. We are that dead and resurrected kid. We are something completely new and that's our story and it's the one that we've made, been made for. 
And we need to change the habits of our heart and our life to begin to live out of it. And I'll tell you, it would be a real mistake to think, well, Apostle Paul, it's easy for you to say. You don't know how difficult it is. You don't know how seductive the old story is. You don't know how good the far country looks on some days. It would be a mistake to say that because he definitely knows. And he speaks of that power and that seduction in terms starker than we probably would ever think to use for it. That's why he says that our old self, that old narrative, that old life has been crucified with Jesus so that it might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He calls it slavery. (laughs) Nothing new about this for God's people. Right? Evan read that story from Exodus 16. It is an astounding story. God's people, there they are. They're like two and a half months out of being free from hundreds of years of slavery. (laughs) Hundreds of years of slavery. And they're two and a half months out, and they're like, you know, man, I am hungry. Back in Egypt, man, we ate all we wanted. Maybe we should go back to slavery. So the second thing we need to say to the knucklehead kid who's thinking about wandering back to the far country is another profound meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. You're free. (laughs) You're finally free. You know, imagine that you've been living in in a place, an apartment here in the city, and you've been living with a horrible landlord You know, and at first everything was okay between you and the landlord. You you paid your rent on time. But over time, this guy started to muscle you around a little bit. You know, he started charging you for repairs for things that you didn't break. And it was strange at first, and he just kept asking you for these kind of extra fees, and you paid him because he was kind of scary. And he lived on the first floor, and he was right there. And you didn't want trouble. And then he started asking you because you were scared and he knew it. He started asking you for extra rent. It wasn't in the contract. It wasn't in the rental agreement. But he would just ask you for more money every month and tell tell you he'd kick you out if if you didn't give that extra money. And, And you started paying him in order to avoid conflict and pain and trouble. But then you got a good advocate good attorney, you got some good legal help, and you finally got out of that lease, and you finally got out of that horrible landlord's place. But then a month later, you're happily settled. The old landlord rings the doorbell. There he is, and he starts demanding money. Would you pay him? Of course not. No matter how intimidating he sounds, no matter how loudly he yells, you know he has absolutely no power over you anymore. No control over you anymore. You've got the paperwork to prove it. You're free, and you can live like you're free. And church, it matters to know we're free. 
no matter how intimidating or enticing the voices coming from the far country are, no matter how sweetly they whisper to us, no matter how loudly they yell to us, they have absolutely no power or control over us at all. And part of growing up as a Christian, part of growing up into the people that we were meant to be, that we were made to be, is believing that that's true and reckoning with it and living out of that truth. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because we are united to him in faith, we are not the same kid that left to go to the far country. Because we've been united with him in faith, we are the dead and resurrected prodigals. We are something entirely new. And we are finally free to live the life that he made us to live. And it stretches out in front of us forever. Let me pray for us. Father, do whatever it is that you can do and will do to help us to believe that this is true. Father, to help us to believe that we have been made into something entirely new because we have been united to Jesus who has died and resurrected for us. Father, do whatever it is that you have to do to take this out of uh, some theological abstraction into a deeply rooted truth of love, into a habit of being and living that swells inside of us. Father, we ask that you would do that for our good and for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray too, Father, for those of us here this morning who hear about all this grace to people who run away. And we ask, Father, that you would, um, to the extent that we would like a different life, that you would draw us to yourself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we gather together,